Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. So we continue on with the scripture for today. It starts off saying, as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. The word of the Lord. So of all the people who have made major scientific contributions to our world, there is only one name that is truly synonymous with genius, and I'm sure you all know what that name is. Can you guess? Einstein. Albert Einstein. That guy right there. (laughs) I like that picture. I think that's nice. Showed he had a sense of humor. Einstein uh, is famous because he really changed the 20th century for us. His discoveries, they made a huge, huge impact on our world. But most people, I don't think, really understand exactly what it is that he did beyond his famous equation, which is E equals mc squared. Energy equals mass times light squared. Beyond that, and most of us don't even know what that means, we're kind of clueless, what did he do? Well, if you do a little bit of research, you find out that his major contribution to our world had to do with helping us to understand how gravity works. Now, we all know that gravity is here, right? I mean, we have to deal with it all the time. It's something that we contend with. It keeps us glued to the earth. You throw something up in the air, unless it's attached to a rocket, what's going to happen? It's coming back down, right? Well, for a long time, we didn't entirely understand how gravity worked. And our first real insight into gravity came 300 years before... Einstein with Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton came up with calculus, and through his calculus equations, he was able to demonstrate that gravity existed. He just couldn't tell you why it existed, or even really how it entirely worked. He could just show you that the force was there. The force is with you, right? Star Wars kind of thing. That was, that was where he was at the time. So we had to wait for 300 years for Einstein to come and fill in the gaps. And what he realized is that gravity is the result of an object in space bending the fabric of space-time. I'm sure that makes total sense to you, what I just said, right? You got that. It's pretty simple, easy, right? Okay, I'm going to try to explain it to you. I'm going to give you an analogy, and then I'm going to show you this really cool animation that I borrowed from Nova, the channel, so that you can understand how it all functions, right? So, Imagine a trampoline. I was actually going to bring in a trampoline, but then I realized you all couldn't see it, so there's no point in doing it because it's flat plane. You couldn't see what I was doing. So imagine there's a trampoline, and you're going to put in the center of this trampoline a bowling ball, okay? So in this analogy, the bowling ball is our sun, and the fabric of the trampoline is the fabric of space-time. Now, I think we often believe that space is just kind of emptiness, right? There's nothing to it. But what Einstein realizes is that it's not just every which way direction, that there's actually a fabric to it. 
And that the bowling ball, which is our sun, it bends that fabric inward, right? So if we had the bowling ball in the middle, it would bend it center. Now, if I took a tennis ball and I placed that tennis ball on the outside of the fabric of the trampoline, what would happen to it? It would roll to the center. This is essentially what is happening in space, that the gravity that we feel, this this force of gravity, it is essentially the fact that the sun is bending the fabric of space-time and that our earth, as it goes around, it is being drawn towards the sun through this divot. So play um, play the animation. So this is how we used to think of it, and then we realized, no, it's actually a flat plane, much more so than we realized. So the sun comes up, it bends that plane, and then the sun, or the earth, it rotates around it. And the same is true of our moon, right? The earth, it bends the fabric, causing the rotation of the moon. And the same would be true for you if you went into space, if you were not on this planet, if you were in space, you would bend the fabric of space-time. You wouldn't make that big of a dent, but you would do that. So, does this kind of, do you kind of have an understanding of how it worked? And, and this, was, this was really revolutionary, the way that he understood this. And this became known as the general theory, the theory of general relativity. This was, this was really a big deal, and it impacted the 20th century in a huge way. And what it did was it helped us understand how the universe works. It made it all very predictable, with the exception of one little thing that they couldn't explain, which was black holes, Black holes. Now, I told you back in my Good Friday sermon, a black hole is an area of space where the gravitational pull is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape from it. It's usually the result of a massive star collapsing in on itself, and it's so compact, the matter in there is so compact and so dense that it creates this massive field of gravity around it that really nothing can escape from. And what Einstein realized was is that the closer in you get to the center of that black hole, the less his equations worked out. In fact, to the point where you get to the center and they totally stop functioning altogether. And so this created an entirely new way of thinking about physics that was known as quantum physics or quantum mechanics. And so if we think of Einstein, his general relativity, it explains the larger universe, stuff that's large scale, the earth, the sun, right, solar systems, galaxies, all these things. But when you get to the small level, the subatomic level, right, that's quantum mechanics. That's the stuff that's really, really tiny. So in Einstein's level, everything is predictable. When you get to the quantum level, nothing is predictable. Paradox is the norm. So let me give you an example. At the quantum level, we're talking about particles, these little teeny things. And scientists are always trying to predict, where's a particle going to go? But the truth is, they don't know. Because in the quantum world, there's an infinite number of answers, and all of them could be correct. So if you're tracing a particle, that particle could stop immediately. It could change directions on a dime. It could literally disappear and reappear in another place. We talk about wanting to be in the same place at the same time. That's very common for us. I wish I could be in two places at once. Well, guess what? In the quantum world, you can be. It is mathematically possible for a particle to exist in two different places at one time. And the list of paradoxes goes on. I am the first to admit to you, I have no clue how all of this works. I will tell you that right up front. This is well beyond my ability of comprehension. You all heard me talk about my math skills a couple sermons ago. I can barely do arithmetic, so trust me, I have no clue how any of this functions. All I know is that for the purposes of our sermons today, there are two different kinds of physics. There's a stuff that deals with large scale, which is known as general relativity, and then there's the small scale, 
which is quantum physics or quantum mechanics. Now, what's interesting is you have these two different fields of physics, and they both are trying to explain the nature of the universe, and they're kind of fighting each other. They don't work together particularly well. And Einstein, he hated quantum mechanics. He thought it was horrible because it wasn't nearly as neat and clean as his understanding of general relativity. It wasn't this really nice way to understand the world. And so he spent the rest of his career trying to join these two disparate fields together into one. And in fact, because he was trying to do this, he actually was jeered by his peers. I probably shouldn't use the word jeered there, but he was the laughing stock of his peers as a result of it. Like, they looked at him and they thought, you're crazy. You need to understand these are two fields. They can't be blended together into one. But he was stuck in general relativity. He refused to believe that his equations were not sufficient for explaining the nature of the universe. He figured, we'll fill in the gaps and then it'll all make sense. And so this genius, this man who is synonymous with brilliance, he became this person who was the laughingstock of the scientific community towards the end of his career. And so the question that I wonder about is, why does this happen? Why do we do this? Why do we have this tendency to get stuck in one way of thinking? Why does this moment that comes to define us, why is that the same moment that often prevents us from moving forward? And most importantly, how do we know when we've reached that point? How do we know when we've come to that point in our lives where it gets us stuck in one place? You know, Einstein, he may have been a genius, but in many ways he was no different than you or I. He, he was a man who was susceptible to the belief that he had life all figured out. And whether he was unwilling or unable, he could not see the own, his own limitations, the limitations of his own understanding of the world. And that is what today's scripture is really all about, whether you realize it or not. I'm going to show you how it's all about this in just a sec, but it's all about that. So in Mark's Gospel, did you all know we've been talking about Mark's Gospel? I wasn't sure if you've heard that we've been dealing with that. So we've been talking about Mark's Gospel for quite a while. And in Mark's Gospel, things have been going along the way you expect them to go, right? He's preaching, teaching, healing Jesus. He's doing all the things you'd expect. And then something happens. So two weeks ago, we talked about the way. Do you remember the way? Okay, the way is kind of the core of his teachings. He lays it out there for us. And then following that, He's taking his disciples, these three guys, James, Peter, John, and they hike up a mountain. Now, I've told you before, anytime you're up on a mountain in the Bible, that tells you something important's about to happen, okay? So you know something important's about to go on. So they go up the mountain, and all of a sudden, what happens? Jesus is transfigured. We don't use that word very often, transfigured, so let me explain to you what it means. To be transfigured means that you're changing shape, or you're undergoing a metamorphosis. The way that Mark describes this metamorphosis is he says that Jesus' clothes become dazzling white, so white that it's beyond the capability of any man-made bleach. If you want to get an idea of just how white his clothes are, think of my skin on his clothes, and that will give you an idea of just how white it probably was. You all got that. You all got it. That's cool. Last service was just like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I'm pretty white. I don't know if you've noticed. It's like a sheen, right? (laughs) I don't think that Jesus could have matched my color, though. That's pretty white. That's tough. So the vision that they have, the fact that his clothes are white, it tells you that 
they are going in to a vision. And this vision is revealing who Jesus is. We get to see Jesus' true identity for the first time. He's no longer this poor beggar from Nazareth. Now we realize that Jesus is someone quite special. Just how special he is only becomes clear when two other people come on the scene, Moses and Elijah. Now, do you all know who Moses and Elijah are? Let's go through it just in case you don't. Moses, right? He's the guy who led the Israelites out of slavery. But more important than that, he received God's law from God to give it to the Israelite people. And by the way, where did he receive God's law? Do you all remember this? On a mountain. Very good. Okay, good. Okay, you're seeing a little bit of a connection here. And Elijah, what is he known for? He's, he's the defender of God's law, right? He's the guy who tried to fight against the corruption and idolatry of his people. And do you know where he fought against that idolatry and corruption? On a mountain. Very good. Very good. So we have Moses, the giver of the law. We have Elijah, the defender of the law. And then we have Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one, the guy who's going to usher in God's kingdom where God's law will reign forever. So you have these three men and they're all working together towards this one end. Do you understand how all three of them work together? All right. Now the fact that Mark has aligned Jesus next to Moses and Elijah, it's supposed to indicate to the reader that Jesus is among a very, very elite club. These people who have had a very deep and very intimate connection with God. Just how deep and just how intimate is told to us when this cloud comes over the mountain. Now, this is very much like when Moses receives the law in Exodus. Remember, this cloud comes over the mountain. And God says from the mountain, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Most Christians believe that this story of the transfiguration is God disclosing to humans that Jesus is divine. That's classically how it's been interpreted. But I want to give you two reasons why I don't think that's entirely correct in reading it this way. The first reason has to do with the fact that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, they're all having a conversation with each other. You notice it says that they're talking to each other. If this was about disclosing Jesus' divinity, Moses and Elijah would be worshiping Jesus, not talking to him. The fact that they're having a discourse with one another, it shows that they're on the same level in terms of their authority. The second reason why I would say that this isn't about divinity is because if you do a little bit of research into Jewish history, you know that the Jewish people, they used to refer to each other as sons and daughters of God. It was very common. In the church, you hear Ty all the time, right? She says, you're a children, you're a child of God, we're children of God. But back then it was your sons and daughters of God. And those who had a very special, deep, intimate connection with God, they would be referred to as true or beloved sons of God. And here we have that that tagline, beloved, that would be like Moses and Elijah. They would have been called beloved sons of God. And so what we see here is that if you were a Jew reading this text, you would see it as Jesus is right there along with Moses and Elijah trying to help God bring God's plan to fruition in the universe. That's what this scene is about. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not trying to say that Jesus isn't divine. That's not the point of what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is that's not what this scene is about. What this scene is about is about where we are now and where we're going. Where we are now and where we're going. 
Let me explain to you what I mean by that. So, after Peter realizes that Moses, Elijah, Jesus, they're all there, he offers to create what for them? Dwellings. This word dwellings. You see how it's in there? It says he wants to create dwellings. Now, what's a dwelling? It's just a, it's a house, right? It's a place to stay. The idea behind this is that if you move into a house, you're going to move all your stuff into it, right, Judy? That's what you're doing, moving into a house, right? Eventually, living with mom and dad or right now, but they should get there, right? We're, we're moving up the chain. <laughs> um, where are you right now, actually? At the Shields. Oh, the Shields. So she's taking over for Diane Shields' house right now. If anybody has a house that they need to be kept right now, <laughs> Judy is the one. <laughs> so if you have a house, you're moving your stuff into it. And if you move in your stuff into the house, what that tells you is, is that you're rooted in that particular place, right? You're not going anywhere, at least for a little while. And so when Peter, when he wants to create these dwellings, the reason why he wants to create them is because he doesn't want this moment to end. He wants this moment to last forever because this is it, right? I mean, how could it get much better than this? You have Moses, Elijah, Jesus... They're all together in one place. What could be better? Well, what could be better is if it never ended. And that's why he says, let us create dwellings for you so we can stay here. But that's not the way life works, does it? Life never stands still. We have these really beautiful, special moments that kind of come out of nowhere. They come into being for us. And as soon as they appear, they are often gone. I think a lot of us are like Peter in that way. I think we want to hold on to those moments. We don't want them to leave, do we? But the fact is that they do. And so we only have two choices in situations like that. We can either obsess over that moment, always trying to get back to it, always thinking about it, always trying to recreate it, or we can move on and let go. Einstein, when he developed his theory of general relativity. He thought that was it. I have done it. I have created it. There is nothing more to do here. And he was unwilling to believe that that theory was not sufficient for total explanation, just needed to fill in the gaps. And I would say that Einstein built a dwelling around that theory. He was unable to move forward from it. And as a result, it literally anchored, it sank his career. When you believe that you have life all figured out, when you've reached the pinnacle, when you've had an experience that you believe is the one experience that will define your life, that no other could come close, that is the moment that you will stop living. What this story of the transfiguration about, very, very simply, it's about where we're going as Christians. If our goal is to become like Jesus, if our goal is to undergo a metamorphosis, to become like the resurrected people we are supposed to be, to embody that selfless love, if that's our goal, if that's where we're headed, if that's where we're going, then we can never stand still. We must resist the urge to make dwellings for ourselves because the moment we make dwellings, it's the moment we stop and it takes a lifetime to find the resurrected life. Have any of you all ever heard of the philosopher Heraclitus? Heraclitus, he's a Greek philosopher and he was known 
for the doctrine that change is central to the universe. That's what he believed. And he had this beautiful, beautiful saying. He said, you can never step into the river, the same river twice. You can never step into the same river twice. Now, why does he say that? He says that because you go to the river, it might look the same, but the water that was there two seconds ago is not the same water that you're looking at right now. The river has changed, right? And even more important than that, you have changed. You cannot step in to that water and be the same person twice. Because you've changed. You are not the same person who's stepping into it now, who stepped into it two seconds ago. And so the question that I want to leave you with this morning is, what are the rivers in your life to which you keep returning over and over again? What are those moments that you keep reliving in your mind, wishing that you could get back to them? Maybe it's a lost relationship, a person in your life who brought you great joy, Maybe it was an era of your life, a time where you felt free from the burdens of the world. Maybe it was some place that you visited, a foreign land with a landscape that really captured your imagination and brought your soul to life. Maybe it's a memory that you have of a time when you were happy, something only you personally can understand, but you know that you could never get it back. There are many rivers in our lives. And it can be very, very hard for us to leave them behind. But if we want to become the people who God intended for us to be, if we want to change and take on the resurrected life, then we have to be willing to let go. We have to be willing to move forward. And we have to believe that the rivers that we will encounter in the future will be just as meaningful as the rivers we experienced in our past. And I want to help you all move on from those rivers. And I have a whole way of doing this, which is going to be really cool. I'm looking forward to you all participating in this. In the fall, we're going to start a new sermon series. It's called God and Art. We're going to be talking about God and all different kinds of art. We're going to talk about God in paintings, of course, but sculpture, architecture, poetry, film, music, all these different ways that we find God in art. But the final sermon, the sermon that's going to be on December 24th, that might ring, ring a bell for you guys, right? That's what? Christmas Eve. That's going to be called God in Photography. It's going to be a movie like what we watched on Easter. It's going to be a live narrated film. But rather than me go out and take a bunch of photos or take photography from famous artists who were photographers, I uh, want you all, to give me your photography. I want to get it from you. And so what I'm asking is for every single person to give us one photograph, your most important photograph from your collection, whatever that is. And I want a hundred word or less description about that photograph. Now, if your photograph is... A hard copy, if you only have a hard copy of it, it's fine. Give it to us. We'll take care of it. I promise. We'll scan it. Give it right back to you. If it's digital, send it to us. It's June and July. That's when we're accepting these submissions. And some of you, your photographs are going to make it into my sermon. They're going to be up there on the screen. You'll see them as I'm preaching. Some of you are going to be included in an art show that we're going to have here through Advent. 
It's an art exhibit. It's going to be curated by Mario Alberico. He's an artist in our congregation. It's going to be really, really neat. And so all through the narthex, you're going to see these wonderful moments from your life, these moments that have been captured. So I hope that you all will contribute to this because I need your photographs to bring this to life. So look through it. Find the one that's most important to you. But the reason why I'm talking about this today is because I would gander to say that that photograph, if it's that important to you, it probably represents a river in your life. And that for some of you, it may have been hard to move on past that moment. But what we're going to do is, we're going to take that moment, we're going to glorify it for a bit. We're going to put it up in the exhibit, it's going to be in my sermon, you're going to see it up there. And my hope is, is that once everybody has been exposed to that, that you would be able to move on. I really believe that the rivers that are in our future, God has amazing things planned for us. So if we want to undergo that metamorphosis, remember, we have to be willing to encounter those new rivers in our future rather than holding on to the ones of our past. I look forward to seeing what you submit in the next couple of months. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.